Thank you everyone so much for coming to this event that I've been really excited to chair. My name's Jessie Bray-Sharpen and I'm lucky enough to be speaking here with um, Woon and Lawrence. And the books that we're going to be talking about, um, Lawrence's novel, Centred, and Woon's um, piece of non-fiction, um, The Way Through the Woods of Mushrooming and Mourning. Although it might not seem so at face value, these two books have a lot in common, and I've really enjoyed finding the, the connections between these two books. Um, Woon, your book talks about how you lost your husband, Eolf, and then it was um, through learning about mushrooming that you came back to your senses as such. And Lawrence, your novel um, is about a, a woman, Shan, who has lost her position as um, a professor at a university when the humanities department starts to get laid off and um, she ends up going on a journey of trying to find her signature scent and becoming very interested in making her own perfume. So I thought maybe, Woon, if you could start us off with a, a passage introducing your book. Okay, I wrote this book after my husband died and it is about two journeys, an outer journey and inner journey. So the outer journey is my discovery of the world of fungi and the mushroom pickers. I am an anthropologist, so I meet these strange people in the woods. Uh, and the inner journey is uh, in the landscape of grief, and that is how my book starts. This is the story of a journey which started on the day when my life was turned upside down, the day when Eof went to work and didn't come home. He never came back. Life as I had known it was gone in that instant. The world would never be the same again. I was devastated. The pain of my loss was all that was left of him. It tore me apart. But I had no wish to dull the agony with painkillers. I wanted to suffer every ounce of the torment, raw. It was confirmation that he had lived, that he had been my husband. I did not want that to be gone as well. I was in free fall. I, who had always been in command and in control, I, who liked to have a firm grip on things, my lodestar was gone. I found myself in unknown territory, a reluctant wanderer in a strange land. Visibility was poor, and I had neither map nor compass. Which way was up? Which way was down? From which corner should I start walking? Where should I set my foot? There was nothing but blackness. So, how did you go from, from that to this feeling of being your senses being woken up again? So I was in a, a very dark place. And um, really didn't know what to do uh, for a very long time. And uh, so by chance, well, I enrolled myself in this mushroom, Mushrooming for Beginners course. And, uh, well, that was not the only course I had enrolled myself in. 
so I, as you understand, I was desperate. I, you know, had to do something. Well, I did everything, you know. What were some of the other things you enrolled in? Oh, I went to a psychologist. I went to a bereavement group. I did yoga. I did meditation. I did, you know. And, and mushrooming and, stuck. And then, and then... And then somebody suggested mushrooming because, of course, you know, I didn't do all these things by myself. I mean, they were suggested to me. I just, yeah. I just did them. Uh, yeah, and so I went to this course and, and um, yeah, I'm glad it was mushrooming and not stamp collecting. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, this became the saving of me and partly because, you know, back to your question. So uh, when my husband died, I felt that, you know, all my senses just shut down, you know, I, I was very forgetful, I couldn't concentrate, I, you know, I couldn't hear what people were saying, I, you know, I was some, I don't know where I was. But mushrooming, and in particular, identification of mushrooms, it requires you to be awake, it requires you to engage all your senses, and, um, and it was not easy, but it, that was what it did to me. It woke me up, and then to the topic of your wonderful book, you know, especially this the sense of smell. I thought was very, very difficult. I mean, to to smell a mushroom, and then to try to describe that smell, and um, and it was not just me, but it was actually the whole mushrooming community. The words we have for describing smell. So I mean, so this just woke me up. Yeah. Mm. Thank you. Yeah, we'll come back to that words for describing smells later. Um, Lawrence, I found the really interesting connection between the two books being that your character is also experiencing a massive loss and change in her sense of self and identity because her identity was so tied up in her role at the university and um, and is perfuming a kind of a solace for her. Um. I'm going to take it back a step, if that's okay, because there's kind of two... Um, this is a novel, so there's kind of two strands, and I think the genesis of the novel is, in a way, as important as the character in the novel, in her, and that is that I live in Dunedin, but I grew up in the South Island and came from a very strong mountaineering and tramping family and always grew up first and fairly near the Mackenzie and always loved going to that sort of area, part of the country. And recently, you know, you go to places that I used to go to as a younger person where I sort of felt I could engage with the countryside. And now because of that sort of Instagram tourism, um, there's a kind of a grief when you go to those beautiful, iconic places because you're in a crowd of people with phones and things who aren't really engaging with the landscape in the way that, you know, as a... You know, it's a bit of a snob thing, I admit that, but, you know, you sort of, when, when you're following somebody on a track who has a speaker on their day pack so they can listen to music as they're walking up the Hooker Valley, it makes me a bit angry. <laughs> and, um, and so I thought, there's got to be a way that this landscape's no longer entering into me the way that it used to, so I've got to find a way to connect to landscape in a different way and forget all this scenic... Um, iconic, you know, Iraqi, Franz Joseph stuff, or um, Mida Peak, whatever, and engage more with, with ugly landscapes. And the way that I could do it would be through sound, I thought, you know, through bird call, water sounds, those sorts of things, 
or through scent. And I'm really lucky to live on the edge of Signal Hill in Dunedin, which is a hill that's um, slash, so it's all old forestry that's been cut down and is now kind of rejuvenated in sort of scrubby bush like Manuka Kanaka, gorse, broom. And to look at this hill, it's pretty appalling. Um, there's a lot of ecosystems, lots of mushrooms. But if you walk there um, at seven in the morning, as I do with my dogs, and you stand still, depending on the weather, the temperature, the seasons, there's these beautiful smells, and it can be an overwhelmingly beautiful place to be as long as you're approaching it through smell, and often there's tuis and bellbirds and things, rather than sight. And so I did this whole scent mapping thing of, of my area. But in terms... So that's the genesis for the book. But in relation to the character in the book, so the other big thing that's going on in Dunedin at the moment is the slashing of the humanities departments. And I found that every time I write a novel, um, I feel this kind of untethered, it's a kind of sense of being untethered because I focused so hard and concentrated so hard and worked so hard to try and create a, a beautiful sentence, say, that once the book's gone, you feel adrift. And it's the same, I think, with the character in the novel. You know, she's an American studies um, lecturer who has devoted, devoted herself to her career. And she's a specialist in sort of um, Southern American, Louisiana sort of fiction. And so when she loses her job, she's got that sense of being adrift. And she's also a middle-aged woman. So every time she sends out an a application for a job interview, you know, she gets the sense that she's being ignored because she's over 50. You know, she barely gets a response to her applications. So it's the sense of this woman being adrift, and she's always had this love of perfumes, and she remembers her granny talking about signature scents, and so she tries to recreate herself and rebuild herself through using perfume. But really, it kind of comes from, from my experience with the landscape. And I read that you said that you feel like writing about the South Island is... Um, a political act because you're bearing oh, it's witness. so important. Yeah. It's so important. I think I've, I'm sort of digging my heels in a bit and really beginning to see myself as a regionalist writer and sort of keeping up the, you know, just tapping more and more into, I mean, all my novels basically have been kind of South Island novels and this one isn't, but I think it's so important that we represent the place where we live because it's not going to be represented otherwise. And it's changing so quickly down there. You know, the dynamics are changing so quickly and we're losing so much. Yeah, that I think it's really... It is a political act, not to just become a kind of a, a bland international kind of Netflix kind of world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, what do you think, Wona? Does that... Um kind of ring a bell, I guess, for you in terms of the time you spend in the wood um, in, in Norway? Do you, do you, does that come to mind, the, the state of the environment at the moment um, when you're mushrooming, or is it more that you're going into your own personal bubble, so you're less thinking about the world? Definitely. I mean, I, you know, we're all talking about climate change now, and, 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 and when I was 
discovering mushrooms. Of course, this topic also came up because uh, you know there are mushrooms that we don't have in Norway that exist in Denmark, south of Norway, and which the mushrooming community expects to see in Norway as the land grows warmer. Uh, so, so, so you can use mushrooms also as a kind of indicator of climate change. But that is, that is not the main topic which I'm writing about. That's just incidental. And so, so I start very close to myself and you know, what's happening and just trying to make sense of, of this nonsense, right? I mean, this senselessness, yeah. And, and, and uh, so that's where I start and I go into the woods which I didn't do before, even though I lived in Norway, and Norwegian, Norwegians like, like you here are very outdoorsy people. My husband was not, and I was happy that he didn't religiously go into the woods every weekend. Uh, but Because um, he was a city boy. And you said about growing up in Malaysia. Yeah, in Malaysia we don't, don't go, go into the woods. You know, There's lots of poisonous things. Yeah, lots of, you know, dangerous creatures there. So, so, so this was a new world to me. So it's not just the mushrooms at, you know, at my feet, but it's also this, this, this landscape that I was going into. It was completely new to me. It's not something I was you know, brought up to, to like doing. And, um, but so it was mushrooms which brought me there, right? I mean, if you want to look for mushrooms, you have to go into the woods, right? So, so, so this was a new discovery, and, 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 and it slowly it sort of broadened my horizons. And, and so, so I think if you read the book, you, you, you see that, yeah. Because I, I end up mushrooming uh, not only in the Norwegian woods, you know, I... I'm in New York Central Park, and I'm mushrooming there, you know, and yeah. So, so, so it, it takes me... Uh, and you made it a very... Um, your most exciting find was in America. Yeah, it was. Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to tell us about that a little bit? Well, I was in this place called Telluride in Colorado. Um, the minute I started, I mean, mushrooming, I'd heard about this crazy place. Uh, they have every year they have a mushroom festival and 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 the thing that attracted me to this <laughs> this festival was it was um, there was a parade and people dressed up as mushrooms <laughs> <laughs> and well that appealed to me and, um, so I thought oh that'd be wonderful if I you know could Did go you there. Dress up? I had a hat. You know. <laughs> but people really, you know, just like the carnival in, in, in Brazil, and people spend the whole year, you know, producing, making, you know, their, their, their costumes. And of course, there's a, there's a competition, you know, and, and, and they're judged, and, and the best costume is, is, is um, you know, will we'll, we'll get a prize. And, and they're really... You know, if you just Google that, you just okay. see some crazy stuff there. <laughs> and of course, it was started by all these hippies, you know, who also were mushroomers. And so that, that's the background of that place. Yeah. Yeah. And I found there, I found a mushroom that had not been found before there. Wow. So that was the, uh, so that was mycologically interesting. Yeah. 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 Very exciting. <laughs> I will be Googling that mushroom festival. Yeah, please do. <laughs> and this year, actually, I was there again. No, not this year. Last year, I was there again. This time to talk about my book. 
and um, Vogue magazine came. So it's not. So they were a bit. They were happy and sad because it used to be like a very fringe kind of activity uh, event, and now it, they felt like now we are in Vogue magazine. You know, it's like it, it, it's very mainstream. But there's a picture there of of, of these. Uh, yeah, Lawrence, I I want to just go back to when you said about the background for the book and your interest in scent um, coming from that new way to kind of be in nature yeah um but you you've always been interested in in perfume and scent haven't you I've I've always been interested in perfume but I'm less interested in perfume now than I am in the scent of um the outdoors yeah I mean like you know, you can't be a tramper in the South Island without knowing how wonderful a beach forest smells or walking above the snow line, you know, all those fantastic smells. So it's not like I had a dead nose that was suddenly awakened. Yeah. But um, <laughs> I think the, the thing that really got to me was that I hadn't given much thought to how my knowledge of scent and being able to identify scents was related to my cultural mm. heritage. Yeah. So for me, like I would say, I love the smell of a beech forest or honeydew, and, and that's kind of, I think most people who go tramping would know those kinds of smells. But it was far harder to think of ways... Part of the scent mapping was not just to stand there, and it's almost like a form of meditation because you have to slow down and you smell and you smell and you think... Where's that smell coming from? And, you know, because you can't see it. And then, but the real, the real draw for me with this whole scent mapping and writing this book was trying to put the scents into words without using, relying on metaphors, but also going into great detail. So instead of just saying that something smells sweet, um, you go, sweet in what way? So, for example, there's this fantastic grass called kauratu, um, which is a kind of a buffalo grass, a sweet grass. And um, Māori used it, plaited it in belts and on neck pieces. And it's, <laughs> I spent ages searching for it in um, Dunedin, and I was helped by a botanist, and then there was this, went to the Botanic Gardens, and there's this massive clump of it <laughs> with a big sign, you know. <laughs> so, you know, don't overlook your Botanic Gardens. And, and the smell is, um, it's got a lot of, Cormorin in it, which is used in perfume, and it's a very sweet smell. So if you think of the smell of freshly cut hay, that's that smell. But it's also got a very, as it dries, it becomes more like a very sweet marzipan smell. And if you cut a bit of it and put it in your room, the whole room just smells of marzipan, like this beautiful... And, and so, so sort of coming upon these plants that just look like scraggy grass, that if it was in your on your lawn, you'd be sort of hacking at it and thinking it was the worst thing in the world. You know, it's nice when you sort of discover that things that you would overlook have this sort of radiate this charm and this interest, you know, and it's not just the beautiful heritage roses, say, in the Northern Cemetery or, some, or Bolton Street Cemetery, which also are terrific, but, yeah. Some more unexpected. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you said you're really interested in finding words for sense and not just using metaphor because there's a chapter in 
Woon's book about um, about smelling and the scent of mushrooms and how you were frustrated with the the descriptions that already existed in the mycological world and so you decided to um, have a seminar about and and get people that had that were used to describing things with smell but also were not part of the mushroom community so they didn't know what things should smell like. Mm. Yes, uh, I was very lucky. So every year there is a huge uh, meeting of mushroomers, you know, in, in, in Norway, organized by this amateur society. It's, and it's national. People come from the whole, the whole country and sometimes from abroad too. And, and that year uh, it was going to be in Oslo where, where I was and I was part of the committee and I, I suggested that we had this smell seminar, you know, and, and they said, okay, you know, you can organize that. Um, and, and what I wanted was to explore this further. Uh, so I was looking very hard to, to look for uh, qualified people who could tell us what these mushrooms smelled like. And I, was, I, I contacted the wine industry, you know, the people who worked with wine and, and, and who would have this vocabulary, uh, like, you know. And of course they said yes, but they were too expensive. I had no budget at all. <laughs> and then in the end I chanced upon this... Uh, uh, this, uh, you know, it, it is a commercial enterprise, and they work for the food industry, uh, and and these are people who are selected for their gift, anyway, in, in a sense, and they are trained uh, to smell, and and they were very excited about the project, and so because they thought that mushrooms only had one smell, you know, and of course they don't. So, so it was a big enterprise. I had to get the mushroomers to go out to find, you know, mushrooms with very distinct and particular smells. And then, well, to cut a long story short, they, they were, um, I think there were 10 of them. It was a huge group. And they, they, they worked on, on, on the mushrooms um, for some time and came up with a list of what they thought these mushrooms smelled like, and, um, and basically they just, they didn't agree with the mushroom reference books. And I was very happy with that because it proved me right that the, the books were wrong, you know. Um, and so, so, uh, so that is the chapter which professional mycologists like a lot in this book. Yeah, because it's like, uh, you know, it's, it's groundbreaking <laughs> in that sense because mushroomers have a very un underdeveloped vocabulary uh, when it comes to smells. You know, this smells like, you know, dirty socks or this mushroom smells like a raw potato. So it always smells like something else. They don't have a technical language for for particular smells, the way people in the coffee industry or people in the wine industry or, you know, would, would, would have. Yeah. It's almost like people have a shortcut language when they come to describing smells. So they just sort of tend to, you know, say it's sweet or bitter or... Or, or they say what they think the, the thing should smell like rather than how it smells to them. Yeah. It's kind of a herd... Herd mentality Definitely. to the way yeah. people approach yes. smell, I think. And, and they'll be very objective. This smells good, this smells bad, you know. Yeah. And, and so I love it when I have a group of beginners and we find these very, you know, particular mushrooms very... Uh, they don't know how it should They smell. don't know how it should mm. smell. And yeah. I'll cut the mushroom and I'll let them smell it. 
and they always split into two. So, you know, half would say this smells wonderful, perfumey. The other would think that the other half would think it smells terrible. And I always use this example to the veterans just to show them that, you know, you should stop telling us, you know, whether mushroom smells good or bad because it's very personal, subjective. Yeah. How how did it go for you? You said you wanted to find out um, new ways of describing scents for the for the book. I guess for me, I mean, my style of writing tends to be um, well. I'm not a plot-driven novelist, and um, I tend to like delving into sentences, and I really like dense descriptions. So um, one of the first scents that I was thinking of when I wrote this book um, was the smell of the old wool store and the gasworks. First the gasworks in Christchurch, because my granny used to live near the gasworks in Christchurch in Waltham. And, you know, if you grew up in Christchurch during the sort of 60s and 70s, when it was still really smoggy, and putting out the milk bottles on those smoggy nights, you know, when the air is gritty and, and everything smells kind of like damp newspaper or newspaper that the cats peed on or something like that. And that sort of metallic-y, gritty, coal smell with, combined with the gas works. That was always a very strong memory for me that I, that I wanted to bring up. But the other one is that I remember, and is the smell of um, wool sheds and wool stores and that beautiful greasy smell of, of wool and how sweet it is and within the wool. And you get it when um, actually um, stock trucks go by down the main road in Dunedin, you know, that incredible smell of sort of that um, sweet sort of wool that almost carries the smell of the grass and the pasture in it but combined with the poo and the, you know, all those sorts of things. It's such a wonderful, warm, encompassing smell. So when I wrote this book, um, the way I started it was actually, it kind of wasn't really scent-related. I imagined the whole book as being dark brown as a colour. And so um, the first bit that I sort of wrote in my head before I started writing the book was about this woman who comes into her apartment, which is a converted wool store building in Auckland. There used to be one down in Christchurch, but it fell down. Um, and the sort of, you know, the, the rough, dark beams, and you could imagine it being the top floor of those kind of terrible sort of tiled glass skylights that has, you know, opaque with pigeon shit, and the tops of the beams would have pigeon shit on them. But this sort of very dark brown... Um, room that has this warmth, this smell of wool after being closed up all day and you open the door and it's probably about 30 degrees because it's at the top of the building and the smell of wool and grease and the tar that's in the beams and then she's got all these scent bottles which are all in those beautiful amber coloured bottles. So for me the book really started as a brown novel and I worked out from the brown novel into the green of the outdoors but those sorts of things sort of stay in, in your head and they don't sort of often, pick, they don't get picked up by readers very often, those sorts of things, because they're a bit too oblique. But, yeah, so it was that comforting closeness, that close, close, close envelopment and scent that, and that colour that yeah. really started the book. Would you like to read us? A, a yeah, I won't read that bit because it's sort of only a 
paragraph. <laughs> <laughs> so what I'll do, if it's okay with you, Jessie, yeah. is um, read a bit from the end of the book. It's about four minutes long. Is that okay? Um, so this is after the, um, the woman, Shan, has lost a job. Um, she hasn't been able to find new work, so she's had to sell her house and she's moved into a caravan. And she's gone down to the South Island because, of course, she has to in any of my books. You have to end up in the South Island sooner <laughs> or later. I'd be selling out. <laughs> and she's living in a place like Alexandra, let's imagine, and she um, has a store where she makes and sells perfumes. On weekends, I take my homemade perfumes to the local market where I have a makeshift store squeezed between a couple that sells deep-fried banana dumplings and a retired local who paints flower landscape scenes onto river stones. I introduced my wilding scent a few weeks ago, and to my delight, it has proved popular with both locals and summer visitors. Many of the people who tested it remarked that its smell reminded them of something. Though not all of them could say what it was, but if I wait, most of them manage to identify time among the notes. Those who can't identify the individual ingredients when I first smell the perfume always nod once I provide the correct words. Of course, they say, it was on the tip of my tongue. I knew, I knew the smell, but I just couldn't think of what it was. But now you've told me it's so obvious. I get the time, but there's pine needles and flowers and jasmine. I love the moment when my customers start sharing their memories of scent with me. One woman who grew up on a farm on Banks Peninsula described her childhood and the mixture of fear and pleasure she used to experience when she had to go outside to the toilet during the night. I listened carefully as she spoke and wrote down what she said after she left. The long drop was corrugated iron and almost completely covered in jasmine and honeysuckle. During the day, bees and flies and cicadas created a constant buzz. Inside, the toilet was warm, sometimes very hot from the sun bearing down on the tin. I noticed that the jasmine smelt like the contents of the toilet, and the toilet smelt like the jasmine. They were a perfect pair. At night, the scent changed and became cleaner as every, everything had been washed in sunlight soap. There were hundreds of moths bumping around the outside light. They scared me when they flooded too close. The long drop itself was like a black well, and I thought about all the things that might live in it down there. And when I went out to the toilet at night, I could hear the waves lapping below on the beach, and the wind used to rummage through the Macrocarpa hedge. And I had a torch, and I balanced it on the frame of the toilet wall, and the shadows were scary but beautiful, and the toilet roll and the spider webs and the tendrils of jasmine were all crazy and unfamiliar. And the outside toilet was peaceful and yet busy with life and smells Gosh, it's funny what you remember. More and more often, I've taken to asking people to describe a scent from their childhood or a favourite scent memory, and it's surprising how easily they're able to pinpoint an exact moment in their life that way. I make notes again, a list that grows and grows. My grandmother smelt of hairspray and cigarette ash. The day my father died, I went outside and sat in his car, and it smelt of him, and I bawled my eyes out. My mother always sprayed too much perfume, and I hated it. It made her smell like an old lady. I think it was called youth dew, but us kids called it youth spew. <laughs> I love the smell of swimming pool water when it splashes onto hot concrete. It reminds me of when I was a teenager and spent summers at the local pool. 
with my friends, and I like the smell of bleach too, especially when it dries in skin. After making one of my scents West Coaster, I started quizzing my visitors to the stall about what to them was the smell of New Zealand. Most people responded with either the bush or the sea, and I had to probe them to give more detail. It's the smell of honeydew on beech trees, said one woman. That's such a great smell. It's so peaceful. The smell is peaceful, I asked. I don't know. I guess so. Well, the bush is peaceful, and that's what I really mean. Another person surprised me by responding silage. He had a faraway look in his eyes, and when I asked him what made him think of silage, he looked embarrassed and said, all right, then ryegrass, the ryegrass that grows on the Hakataramia hills. Is that where you grew up, I asked, on a farm? It was during the late 40s, he said, and they were the best years of my life. What about the wool shed, I asked. I love that smell of greasy wool with a bit of sheep poo mixed in. He gave me a funny look. But then he nodded in agreement and said, Clover. I tried a different way of posing the question. If you were to, going to describe the smell of New Zealand to someone who hadn't been here, what would you say? Almost everyone said the bush or the beach, although a tourist from New York said fresh air. I kept asking different people, and quite often men would offer aromas associated with food, like roast lamb or fish and chips or hangi or even hokey pokey ice cream. If I asked them to name a plant or flower, they tended to look a little bit uncomfortable and shake their heads and say, I don't know much about flowers. How about the bush? Saturday, said another, when I mow the lawn. I love that smell of grass. There were exceptions, of course, people who were keen to consider the question. It's impossible to narrow the scent of New Zealand down to one thing, said a woman of my own age. It's going to be different depending on who you are and where you live. But if you had to, I said, cabbage trees, she said, smell of cabbage trees and flower. They're like jasmine or lilies, and they're kind of sweet and honey-like. But lots of natives have beautiful scents. You just have to know what to look for. Have you ever smelt the native Easter orchid? It's fabulous. It's so strong. Are you a botanist, I asked. No, she said, but I have a big garden. And then she asked me, are you a botanist? And I said, no, I don't even have a garden but I'm trying to train my nose to be more receptive to the smells of my surroundings. I think we don't spend enough time thinking about smell or even smelling things. Mm, thank you. I really love that, that passage. I marked that as well. And I, I love um, when somebody says the smell of New Zealand is Saturday when they mow the lawn. I love that. Um, and... I think that's really interesting, that idea of the character finding what the New Zealand scent is. And um, there's a part in the book where she's doing a little bit of research. She wants to find the idea um, of the great Māori perfume that, that um, a missionary has written about. And then she discovers that actually she needs to go back to the beginning and learn to smell native New Zealand plants. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that was... I mean, that's kind of related to me, too, because, you know, as I was saying, I, I spent this time in the bush, but then I didn't really... You know, there's obvious plants that you smell that are natives, you know, like tarata and lemonwood, you know, those sorts of things, or manuka, that, that you feel you're um, familiar with. But, um, and also living in the South Island, there's certain plants that don't grow down there that grow up here. 
But things like tauramia, for instance, which is the golden Spaniard, you know, the big sp spiky Spaniard grass, which um, the resin from that was used by Natahu for perfume. And that was a, a real sort of eye-opening discovery to me. But it was interesting. So part of my research, I was reading these diaries of Richard Taylor, who was a missionary in Whanganui and a botanist. And I'd, I'd come across, before I started reading his diaries and journals from the 1840s, um, that he, he, in a different book, had described this grand Maori perfume, which I'd never heard of, which combines um, the tauramia, which is this sweet, sort of almost like a sugarcane scent, I, should, I think. Um, a, a, a fern called piripiri, which I immediately thought must have been bitty bitty, but it's not. It's a fern that, when it's dry, it smells of dried blood, so it's got that metallic, bloody smell to it. Um, karatu, which is that grass that I was talking about, that smells of marzipan and vanilla. Um, uh, there's a moss called kapuri, which I'm not too sure... We haven't, don't really know much about that. Um, I went, I tried to find more out. Um, tarata, which is lemon wood, and a, a few other things. And I was thinking, often when, when I'm thinking about a perfume and someone says, well, this is an amber-based perfume or this is a neroli-based perfume, I can sort of imagine it in my head, or a rose-based perfume. But when I was presented with this scent that is made up of something that kind of smells sugary, sweet, combined with dried blood, combined with marzipan, combined with lemon, it kind of just formed this, you know, this a bit of a muddle in my brain, you know, like when you're mixing paint and it goes from the colour you wanted to a sort of muddy brown. Like, I just couldn't imagine it. I couldn't, whereas if, if like I say, you said imagine a rose perfume, you can imagine, you know, the dense sort of rich roses or, you know, a fresh rose or whatever. And I thought, well, this is crazy. You know, like, I've lived my whole life in New Zealand. Mm. How is it that this is... But, you, but you're thinking it's of so those confusing. very... It's so confusing. Yeah, and it's those... What, even though you've grown up in New Zealand, you're thinking of those very British scents. Yeah, yeah. and my parents came from Manchester and all the perfumes that I've ever smelt are really made by European perfume houses. And it just seemed to me, well, why is it that scent, you know, why am I surprised? I mean, scent is obviously as culturally um, charged as any other thing, you know, like art. You know, you go to an art gallery and I might respond to artworks by New Zealand artists but have difficulty with um, Asian art or, you know, because it's not familiar. So I think it all boils down to responding to what's familiar and what you're comfortable with. And so this woman in the book is in that ideal position of having to deal with what's unfamiliar. So this dealing with the scents that have been used in Māori perfume and in the native bush and deciding that the way that she's going to um, learn about these things is by going back to first steps, which is learning the plants. Yeah, wow. Yeah. Um, which is a bit like mushrooming. I mean, you go back to first steps and you go into the forest. Yeah, and I think that idea of um, that um, links between two cultures is really interesting as well in terms of yourself, Wern, and your book because you came to Norway as an exchange student when you were 18 from Malaysia. and Yeah, and then just stayed on. Yeah, yeah. you met Alf. And so 
after 30 years there, you found yourself wondering whether or not you should stay or go back to your mother in Malaysia. Yeah. And I like the idea of you kind of thinking that by mushrooming, were you becoming more Norwegian because you were out in the forest? Mm. And mm. Yeah. 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 Yes. I mean, I come from Malaysia, went to Norway, it's an exchange student, stayed on. But, you know, basically, grief was an unknown territory. I mean, I was, I was new, yeah. you know, in this landscape. And I just had to sort of find out more about that, right? And it was step by step. And uh, so, you know passports and nationalities, you know, that, that was not what I was thinking of. I was just here, you know, I just yeah. needed to find my way out. Yeah. Mm. And, and the reason why, I mean, the, 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 the subtitle of the book is Of Mushrooms and Mourning and, and, and you know, and two unloved topics, right? But in the book, I, I, I write about how they are related yeah. for, for, for me and how and how mushrooms, you know, saved me. And, and um, so one was a sense that we were talking about, you know, just waking up. But the, the other is, is joy. Because when my husband died, I thought, I will never be happy again, you know. And how, how can, you know, how, how, how am I going to do that? Yeah. And you've got a passage yeah. to read. If, if it's okay, yeah, I'll read it right you. now. So this is the other way in which mushrooms are related to mourning for me, and that is, well, I'll just read it. Since I became bitten by the mushroom bug, I have discovered an invisible, parallel world right at my feet, one with its own unruly logic and wayward vitality, a magical world which I would once have walked straight past, unwitting. Sometimes, when I find mushrooms, time seems to stand still. I experience both flow and zen, the sense of gratification and of being at one with the universe bring both inner contentment and happiness. At such moments, only one thing matters, to be exactly where I am and do exactly what I'm doing. At such moments, I do not think about what I'm going to have for dinner or what people think of my hairstyle. Gathering mushrooms is both a tactile and a sensory experience. First, you feel the degree of resistance in the mushroom. Some stubborn fungi dig in their heels. Others are ready to leave the forest and come home with us if we merely smile sweetly at them. I love the moment when after a little careful grubbing about, I finally have my golden prize in my hand. To me, it feels almost like scraping my way to the winning number on a scratch card. A cheap thrill. One thing is the sense of mastery that comes with more knowledge and more practice in exploring a forest. Something else and quite unexpected 
is the feeling of euphoria. My heart leapt the first time I found a delicious edible mushroom on my own. Was this happiness? It was staggering to f actually feel an emotion I thought had gone for good when Eov died. It was like being given an intravenous shot of multivitamins. What a sensation. Elation bubbled out of every cell in my body. All at once, a slender golden beam of light pierced my soul. Find one mushroom, and there's a good chance you will find another nearby. The thrill of discovery is cumulative. One mushroom, one delight. Two mushrooms, double delight. We probably have time for some questions shortly, but I, I do want to just ask you one more, um, which is to do with the structure of both your books and... Um, and how you decided to do that. So, so Lawrence, you've got yours like a perf a structure like yeah, a perfume. Yeah, I structured it like a perfume. So perfumes, traditional perfumes, have base notes, which are the sort of the long, well, they're, they're the denser molecules, so they're the slow-burning notes. And then the heart notes, which is sort of like the main theme of the perfume, and then the top notes, which are the kind of the sparkly citrus or... Notes that you sort of notice when you first spray it on in the department store and the, the attention grabbers. And so when you're making perfume, you sort of start with the top notes and you work through to the base notes so that you get a rounder picture of how the, the scent forms. So it was structured as top notes, heart notes, which is the main theme of the book, and then the base notes, which is the, sort of the resonating kind of echoes that sort of come back. But... It, in a perfume, as in the book, the top notes, base notes, heart notes, they're not separate, you know, they don't have like filters between them, so you get echoes and flickers of one coming through the other and, and or recurring notes so that they, yes, so it's a really nice way of linking up all the people and the ideas in the novel. Yeah, I really liked that. Yeah, thank you. Um, and when you have got... Um, two kind of styles going through yeah. your book. So there are two stories here, the outer journey, the inner journey, mm. and uh, this edition here, like the Norwegian edition, um, has these two stories in two colours. Yeah, I think that works really well. And two fonts, mm. you know. Uh, so, and people come to the book from different angles, you yeah. know. And so you said you some of your sorry to interrupt, but I just no. wanted to point out you said some of your fans hate mushrooms, <laughs> and you really like that. I love. I them. thought that was yeah. great because I think that must be my writing, you know. That you know, <laughs> even though they hate mushrooms, they still like my book. You know? <laughs> no, so so people come to the book from different angles. So of course you can, you know, if you are a mushroomer, you could and only want to read about the mushrooms, you could do that. But but I find that you know. Ba even though these are the obvious audiences, you know, these two groups here, I mean, I find that other people read the book too, and I'm very <laughs> pleased with that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you also said that um, because the, so there's a, the green writing throughout is sort of you specifically um, writing about dealing with your grief and um, mentioning the loss of Aof. 
but you said the American edition is not separating yes, them. Yes, it's interesting because so I have two yeah. English editions, right? One U UK and one US, and and the and the US edition doesn't do this. So it's just one color throughout. And of course, when I'm writing the book. I don't think about the production, what the book is going to look like, and now I have so many of them. <laughs> and, and, but it's interesting with you know, English, one language, but you know, two, two different productions, and, and what it does to the, to the reading experience. I don't think I would say that one is better than the other, but it's just that it gives a, a different experience. And also here there are illustrations too. Drawings, very nice drawings, which I'm very oh, pleased yes, the with. Drawings yeah. are beautiful. They're whimsical, they're magical, and at the same time, they you can identify the mushrooms. Yeah, so they're correct, scientifically correct. They're like oh, botan botanical yeah. drawings. Yeah. yeah, but in some editions, there are photographs of mushrooms, and I think that gives for a different type of of reading experience. Too. Yeah, I like the drawings better. I think I like it, the it, 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 you know emphasizes the narrative more. I mean, I think the photographs make for a more reference type of book, you know. So, yeah. Mm. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, so we've got time for a few questions. If anybody in the audience has any, um, any questions they'd like to ask Lawrence or Woon, and, yeah, if you'd like to just come up to this microphone here. This is a frivolous question. I'm not sure if you've been mushrooming in New Zealand, but... Um, if you have, what does New Zealand smell like? And Lawrence, what does the North Island smell like? <laughs> <laughs> no, I have not been mushrooming in New Zealand yet. I hope to. Uh, I, I know that there are mushrooms out there. Um, I was, um, I had a talk yesterday too, yes, and, and, and the woman who interviewed me brought some mushrooms which she had, she had um, picked yesterday morning. And... Um, I am not able to answer what New Zealand smells like. I, I should pay more attention, yes, because I, I, this is the first time I'm in New Zealand. Um, it reminds me a lot of Norway, actually. I mean, not, not smell-wise particularly, but just um, the feeling of it. Yeah. I think, um, for me, I, I really love the smell of kelp and that sort of you know the smell around Breaker Bay Moa Point that sort of area where there's the the kelp and those kind of those um, scrubby um, you know the plants that are growing on the sh big stony banks and the bit of broom so I think of things like a mixture of kelp and gorse and broom um, for this e region and that sort of slightly metallic and muddy smell of the boulders as well. Yeah, I really love that. But also, I mean, I love the smell of Rotorua. I love that smell. Yeah, I just think that's the most, you know, to be in that sort of place and think that that sort of sulfurous smell that's coming from, you know, from a hot land, you know, it's so sort of primordial. Yeah. It's just amazing. It just blows me away, that sort <laughs> of idea of it. Yeah. I think that was a really great question. Thank you. Not frivolous. Well, the good kind of frivolous. Um, and a great note to end on. And so um, I just want to say thank you all for coming and a really big thank you to Woon and Lawrence. Can we all just um, give a great big thanks to these authors? <laughs>